Welcome to Fast Asleep. We're very glad you're here. We are ready to do part two of a Daphne du Maurier tale, a twisting tale. More twists to come, so many more. If you haven't heard part one, please, you know what to do. Go back and listen to it. All right. In part one, you may have noticed, okay, the character characters of the twins. Yeah, they were not exactly portrayed in a flattering way. I hear you. It bugged me. Another time, interestingly enough, on this subject, Margaret Foster, Mr. Morier's biographer, discovered through some correspondence that Daphne thought of herself as two completely separate people. One was the loving wife and mother, but the other, a hidden personality, she called a male lover, telling us that he was full of energy. And this was thought to be the energy behind all of her writings. So it really wasn't Daphne doing the writings. It was this male lover. And listen, despite all this, she denied any bisexuality. She was actually thought to have feared what may have been her true nature. Okay, I also have a word of warning for you. Mr. Morier threw in the B word into part two. You know, the one that's often used for a woman. Just wanted to let you know, it'll be coming up. And with that, it is finally time for you to relax, put your day away, tuck in, and enjoy part two of Don't Look Now. Two very large Camparis with soda, John said. Then we'll study the menu. Oh, he was not going to be rushed. He handed the bill of fare to Laura and looked about him. Oh, mostly Italians. That meant the food would be good. And then he saw them. At the opposite side of the room, the twin sisters. They must have come into the restaurant hard upon Laura's and his own arrival, for they were only now sitting down, shedding their coats, the waiter hovering beside the table. John was seized with the irrational thought that this was no coincidence. The sisters had noticed them both in the street outside, he thought, and they followed them in. Why in the name of hell should they have picked on this particular spot in the whole of Venice unless, unless Laura herself at Torcello had suggested a further encounter or, or the sister had suggested it to her. A small restaurant near the church of San Zaccaria. We go there sometimes for dinner. It was Laura, before the walk, who had mentioned San Zaccaria. Well, she was still intent upon the menu. She had not seen the sisters. But any moment now, she would have chosen what she wanted to eat, and then she'd raise her head and look across the room 
If only the drinks would come. If only the waiter would bring the drinks. It would give Laura something to do. You know, I was thinking, he said quickly, we really ought to go to the garage tomorrow and get the car and do that drive to Padua. We could lunch in Padua, see the cathedral, and touch St. Anthony's tomb, and look at the Giotto frescoes. Oh, and come back by way of those various villages along the Brenta that the guidebook cracks up. Oh, it was no use, though. She was looking up across the restaurant, and she gave a little gasp of surprise. Oh, it was genuine. He could swear it was genuine. Look, she said. How extraordinary. Oh, how really amazing. What, he said sharply. Why, there they are, my wonderful old twins. Oh, they've seen us, what's more. They're staring this way. She waved her hand, radiant, delighted. The sisters she had spoken to at Torcello bowed and smiled. False old bitch, he thought. I know they followed us. Oh, darling, I must go and speak to them, she said impulsively, just to tell them how happy I've been all day. Thanks to them. Oh, for heaven's sake, he said. Oh, look, here are the drinks, and we haven't ordered yet. Surely you can wait until later, until we've eaten. I won't be a moment, she said. And anyway, I want scampi, nothing first. I told you I wasn't hungry. She got up and brushing past the waiter with the drinks, crossed the room. She might have been greeting the loved friends of years. He watched her bend over the table and shake them both by the hand, and because there was a vacant chair at their table, she drew it up and sat down, talking, smiling. Nor did the sisters seem surprised, at least not the one she knew, who nodded and talked back, while the blind sister remained impassive. All right, thought John savagely, then I will get sloshed. And he proceeded to down his Campari and soda and order another, while he pointed out something quite unintelligible on the menu as his own choice, but remembered scampi for Laura. And a bottle of suave, he added, with ice. Well, the evening was ruined anyway. What was to have been an intimate, happy celebration would now be heavy laden with spiritualistic visions. Poor little dead Christine. Sharing the table with them, which was so damn stupid, when in earthly life she would have been tucked up hours ago in bed. Ah, the bitter taste of Campari suited his mood of self-pity, and all the while he watched the group at the table in the opposite corner, Laura apparently listening while the more active sister held forth, and the blind one sat silent, her formidable sightless eyes turned in his direction. She's phony, he thought. She's not blind at all. They're both of them frauds. And they could be males in drag after all, just as we pretended at Torcello. And now they're after Laura. 
he began on his second Campari and soda. The two drinks, taken on an empty stomach, had an instant effect. Vision became blurred. And still, Laura went on sitting at the other table, putting in a question now and again while the active sister talked. The waiter appeared with a scampi and a companion beside him to serve John's own order, which was totally unrecognizable, heaped with a livid sauce. The signora does not come, inquired the first waiter, and John shook his head grimly, pointing an unsteady finger across the room. Tell the signora, he said carefully, her scampi will get cold. He stared down at the offering placed before him and prodded it delicately with a fork. The pallid sauce dissolved, revealing two enormous slices, rounds of what appeared to be boiled pork bedecked with garlic. He forked a portion to his mouth and chewed, and yes, it, it was pork, steamy, rich, the spicy sauce having turned it curiously sweet. He laid down his fork, pushing the plate away, and became aware of Laura returning across the room and sitting beside him. She did not say anything, which was just as well, he thought, because he, he was too near nausea to answer. And it wasn't just the drink, but reaction from the whole nightmare day. She began to eat her scampi, still not uttering. She did not seem to notice he was not eating. The waiter, hovering at his elbow, anxious, seemed aware that John's choice was somehow an error and discreetly removed the plate. Bring me a green salad, murmured John, and even then Laura did not register surprise or, as she might have done in more normal circumstances, accuse him of having too much to drink. Finally, when she had finished her scampi and was sipping her wine, which John had just waved away to nibble at his salad in small mouthfuls like a sick rabbit, she began to speak. Darling, she said, now I know you won't believe it, and it's rather frightening in a way, but after they left the restaurant in Torcello, the sisters went to the cathedral as we did, although we didn't see them in that crowd. And the blind one had another vision. She said Christine was trying to tell her something about us, that we should be in danger if we stayed in Venice. And Christine wanted us to go away as soon as possible. Oh, so that's it he thought. They think they can run our lives for us. This is to be our problem from henceforth. Do we eat? Do we get up? Do we go to bed? We must get in touch with the twin sisters and they 
will direct us. Well, she said, why don't you say something? Because, he answered, you are perfectly right. I don't believe it. And quite frankly, I judge your old sisters as being a couple of freaks, if nothing else. They're obviously unbalanced, and I'm sorry if this hurts you, but the fact is, they've found a sucker in you. Oh, oh, well, you're being unfair, said Laura. They are genuine. I know it. I just know it. They were completely sincere in what they said. Oh, all right, all right, granted, they're sincere. But that doesn't make them well balanced. Honestly, darling, you meet that old girl for 10 minutes in a loo and she tells you she sees Christine sitting beside us. Well, anyone with a gift for telepathy could read your unconscious mind in an instant. And then, pleased with her success, as any old psychic expert would be, she flings a further mood of ecstasy and, and wants to boot us out of Venice. Well, I'm sorry, but to hell with it. The room was no longer reeling. (gasps) Anger had sobered him. If it would not put Laura to shame, he'd get up and cross to their table and tell the old fools where they got off. Oh, I knew you would take it like this, said Laura unhappily. I actually told them you would. They said not to worry. As long as we left Venice tomorrow, everything would come out all right. Oh, for God's sake, said John. He changed his mind and poured himself a glass of wine. After all, Laura went on, we really have seen the cream of Venice. I don't mind going somewhere else. And if we stayed, oh, I know it sounds silly, but... I should have a nasty, nagging sort of feeling inside of me, and I should keep thinking of darling Christine being unhappy and trying to tell us to go. Right, said John, with ominous calm. That settles it. Go, we will. I suggest we clear off to the hotel straight away and warn the reception we're leaving in the morning. Have you had enough to eat? Oh, dear, sighed Laura. Don't take it like that. Look, why not come over and meet them, and then they can explain about the vision to you. Perhaps you would take it seriously then, especially as you are the one it most concerns. Yes, Christine is more worried over you than me. And the extraordinary thing is that the blind sister says, you're psychic and you don't even know it. You are somehow in rapport with the unknown. And I'm, (laughs) I'm not. Oh, well, that's final, said John. I'm psychic, am I? Fine. My psychic intuition tells me to get out of this restaurant right now at once and we can decide what we do about leaving venice when we're back at the hotel he signaled to the waiter for the bill and they waited for it not speaking to each other laura unhappy fiddling with her bag while john glancing furtively at the twins table noticed that they were tucking in to piles 
piles of spaghetti piled high on their plates in a very unpsychic fashion. The bill disposed of, John pushed back his chair. Right, are you ready? He asked. I'm going to say goodbye to them first, said Laura, her mouth set sulkily, reminding him instantly with a pang of their poor lost child. Just as you like, he replied, and walked ahead of her out of the restaurant without a backward glance. The soft humidity of the evening, so pleasant to walk about in earlier, had turned to rain. The strolling tourists had melted away. One or two people hurried by under umbrellas. This is what the inhabitants who live here see, he thought. This is the true life. Empty streets by night, the dank stillness of a stagnant canal beneath shuttered houses. The rest, it's just a bright facade put on for show, glittering by sunlight. Laura joined him, and they walked away together in silence, and emerging presently behind the ducal palace, came out into the Piazza San Marco. Oh, the rain was heavy now, and they sought shelter with the few remaining stragglers under the colonnades. The orchestras had packed up for the evening. The tables were bare. Chairs had been turned upside down. Ah, uh, the experts are right, he thought. Venice is sinking. The whole city is slowly dying. One day, the tourists will travel here by boat to peer down into the waters, and they'll see pillars and columns and marble far, far beneath them, slime and mud uncovering for brief moments a lost underworld of stone. Their heels made a ringing sound on the pavement, and the rain splashed from the gutterings above. A fine ending to an evening that had started with brave hope, with innocence. When they came to their hotel, Laura made straight for the lift, and John turned to the desk to ask the night porter for the key. The man handed him a telegram at the same time. John stared at it a moment. Laura was already in the lift. Then he opened the envelope and read the message. It was from the headmaster of Johnny's preparatory school. Johnny under observation, suspected appendicitis in city hospital here. No cause for alarm, but surgeon thought wise advise you. Charles Hill. He read the message twice, then walked slowly towards the lift where Laura was waiting for him. He gave her the telegram. This came when we were out, he said. Not awfully good news. He pressed the lift button as she read the telegram. The lift stopped at the second floor and they got out. Well, this decides it, doesn't it? She said, here is the proof. We have to leave Venice because we're going home. It's Johnny who's in danger, not us. This is what Christine was trying to tell the twins.
The first thing John did the following morning was to put a call through to the headmaster at the preparatory school, and then he gave notice of their departure to the reception manager, and they packed while they waited for the call. Neither of them referred to the events of the preceding day. It was not necessary. John knew the arrival of the telegram and the foreboding of nature danger from the sisters was coincidence, nothing more. But it was pointless to start an argument about it. Laura was convinced otherwise, but intuitively she knew it was best to keep her feelings to herself. During breakfast, they discussed ways and means of getting home. It should be possible to get themselves and the car onto the special car train that ran from Milan through Calais, since it was early in the season. In any event, the headmaster had said there was no urgency. The call from England came while John was in the bathroom. Laura answered it. He came into the bedroom a few minutes later. She was still speaking, but he could tell from the expression in her eyes that she was anxious. It's Mrs. Hill, she said. Mr. Hill is in class. She says they reported from the hospital that Johnny had a restless night and the surgeon may have to operate, but he doesn't want to unless it's absolutely necessary. They've taken x-rays and the appendix is in a tricky position. It's not awfully straightforward. Here, give it to me, he said. The soothing but slightly guarded voice of the headmaster's wife came down the receiver. I'm so sorry this may spoil your plans, she said, but both Charles and I feel you ought to be told, and that you might feel rather easier if you were on the spot. Johnny is very plucky, but of course he has some fever. That isn't unusual, the surgeon says, in the circumstances. Sometimes an appendix can get displaced, it appears, and this makes it more complicated. He's going to decide about operating this evening. Yes, of course, we, we quite understand, said John. Please do tell your wife not to worry too much, she went on. The hospital is excellent and a very nice staff, and we have every confidence in the surgeon. Yes, said John. Yes, and then broke off because Laura was making gestures beside him. If we can't get the car on the train, I can fly, she said. They're sure to be able to find me a seat on the plane. Then at least one of us would be there this evening. He nodded agreement. Thank you so much, Mrs. Hill, he said. We'll manage to get back all right. And yes, I'm sure Johnny is in good hands. Thank your husband for us. Goodbye. He replaced the receiver and looked round him at the tumbled beds, suitcases on the floor, tissue paper strewn, baskets, maps, books, coats, everything they had brought with them in the car. Oh, God, he said, what a bloody mess, all this junk. The telephone rang again. It was the hall porter to say he had succeeded in booking a sleeper for them both and a place for the car on the following night. Look, 
said Laura, who had seized the telephone. Um, could you book one seat on the midday plane from Venice to London today for me? It's imperative one of us gets home this evening. My husband could follow with the car tomorrow. Here, uh, hang on, interrupted John. No need for panic stations. Hey, surely 24 hours wouldn't make all that difference. Anxiety had drained the color from her face. She turned to him, distraught. It mightn't to you, but it does to me, she said. I've lost one child, and I'm not going to lose another. All right, all right, darling. He put his hand out to her, but she brushed it off impatiently and continued giving directions to the porter. He turned back to his packing. No use saying anything. Better for it to be as she wished. They could, of course, both go by air, and then when all was well and Johnny better, he could come back and fetch the car, driving home through France as they had come. Rather a sweat, though, and, and a hell of an expense. Bad enough Laura going by air and himself with the car on the train from Milan. We could, if you like, both fly, he began tentatively, explaining the sudden idea, but she would have none of it. Oh, that really would be absurd, she said impatiently. As long as I'm there this evening and you follow by train, it's all that matters. Besides, we shall need the car going backwards and forwards to the hospital and our luggage. We couldn't go off and just leave all this here. No, he saw her point. A silly idea. It was only, well, he was worried about Johnny just as worried as she was, though he wasn't going to say so. I'm going downstairs to stand over the porter, said Laura. They always make more effort if one is actually on the spot. Everything I want tonight is packed. I shall only need my overnight case. You can bring everything else in the car. She hadn't been out of the bedroom five minutes before the telephone rang, and it was Laura. Darling, she said, it couldn't have worked out better. The porter has got me on a charter flight that leaves Venice in less than an hour. A special motor launch takes the party direct from San Marco in about 10 minutes. Some passenger on the charter flight canceled. I shall be at Gatwick in less than four hours. Well, I'll be down right away, he told her. He joined her by the reception desk. She no longer looked anxious and drawn, but full of purpose. She was on her way. He kept wishing they were going together. He couldn't bear to stay on in Venice after she had gone. But the thought of driving to Milan, spending a dreary night in a hotel there alone, the endless dragging day which would follow, and the long hours in the train the next night filled him with intolerable depression, quite apart from the anxiety about Johnny. They walked along to the San Marco landing stage, the molo bright and glittering after the rain, a little breeze blowing, the postcards and scarves and tourist souvenirs fluttering on the stalls, the tourists themselves out in force, strolling, contented, the happy day before them. I'll ring you from Milan. Yes. I'll ring you from Milan tonight, he told her. The hills 
will give you a bed, I suppose, and uh, if you're at the hospital, well, they'll let me have the latest news. Oh, oh, that must be your charter party. You're welcome to them. The passengers descending from the landing stage down into the waiting launch were carrying hand luggage with Union Jack tags upon them. <laughs> they were mostly middle-aged and with what appeared to be two Methodist ministers in charge. One of them advanced towards Laura, holding out his hand, showing a gleaming row of dentures when he smiled. Oh, you must be the lady joining us for the homeward flight, he said. Welcome aboard and to the Union of Fellowship. We are all delighted to make your acquaintance. Sorry we hadn't a seat for hubby, too. Laura turned swiftly and kissed John, a tremor at the corner of her mouth, betraying inward laughter. Do you think they'll break into hymns? She whispered. Take care of yourself, hubby. Call me tonight. The pilot sounded a curious little toot upon his horn, and in a moment, Laura had climbed down the steps and into the launch, and was standing amongst the crowd of passengers, waving her hand, her scarlet coat, a gay patch of color, amongst the more sober suiting of her companions. The launch tooted again and moved away from the landing stage, and he stood there watching it, a sense of immense loss filling his heart. Then he turned and walked away, back to the hotel. The bright day all about him. Desolate, unseen. There was nothing, he thought, as he looked about him presently in the hotel bedroom, so melancholy as a vacated room, especially when the recent signs of occupation were still visible about him. Laura's suitcases on the bed, a second coat she had left behind, Traces of powder on the dressing table, a tissue with a lipstick smear thrown in the waste paper basket, even an old toothpaste tube squeezed dry lying on the glass shelf above the wash basin. Sounds of the heedless traffic on the Grand Canal came, as always, from the open window, but Laura wasn't there any more to listen to it or to watch from the small balcony. The pleasure had gone feeling had gone. John finished packing, and leaving all the baggage ready to be collected, he went downstairs to pay the bill. The reception clerk was welcoming new arrivals. People were sitting on the terrace overlooking the Grand Canal, reading newspapers, the pleasant day waiting to be planned. John decided to have an early lunch here on the hotel terrace on familiar ground, and then have the porter carry the baggage to one of the ferries that steamed direct between San Marco and Porta Roma, where the car was garaged. The fiasco meal of the night before had left him empty, and he was ready for the trolley of hors d'oeuvres when they brought it to him around midday. Even here, though, there was a change. The head waiter, their special friend, was off duty and the table where they usually sat was occupied by new arrivals, a honeymoon couple. He told himself sourly, observing the gaiety, the smiles, while he had been shown to a small single table behind the tub of flowers. Ah, she's airborne now, John thought. She's on her way. 
and he tried to picture Laura seated between the Methodist ministers, telling them, no doubt, about Johnny, ill in hospital, and heaven knows what else besides. Well, the twin sisters, anyway, could rest in psychic peace. Their wishes would have been fulfilled. Lunch over. There was no point in lingering with a cup of coffee on the terrace. His desire was to get away as soon as possible, fetch the car and be en route for Milan. He made his farewells at the reception desk and, escorted by a porter who had piled his baggage onto a wheeled trolley, made his way once more to the landing stage of San Marco. As he stepped on to the steam ferry, his luggage heaped beside him, a crowd of jostling people all about him, he had one momentary pang to be leaving Venice. When, if ever, he wondered, when would they come again? Next year? In three years? Glimpsed first on honeymoon nearly ten years ago, and then a second in passing before a cruise, and now, this last abortive ten days that had ended so abruptly. The water glittered in the sunshine. Buildings shone. Tourists in dark glasses paraded up and down the rapidly receding Molo. Already the terrace of their hotel was out of sight as the ferry churned its way up the Grand Canal. So many impressions to seize and hold. Familiar loved facades balconies, windows, water lapping the cellar steps of decaying palaces. Oh, the little red house where D'Annunzio lived and with its garden, our house, Laura called it, pretending it was theirs. And too soon the ferry would be turning left on the direct route to the Piazzale Roma. So missing the best of the canal, the Rialto the further palaces. Another ferry was heading downstream to pass them, filled with passengers, and for a brief, foolish moment, he wished he could change places, be amongst the happy tourists bound for Venice. And all, all he had left behind him. And then, and then, he saw her, Laura, in her scarlet coat, the twin sisters by her side, the active sister with her hand on Laura's arm, talking earnestly, and Laura herself, her hair blowing in the wind, gesticulating, and on her face, a look of distress. He stared, astounded, too astonished to shout, to wave. Well, anyway, they never would have heard or seen him, for his own ferry had already passed and was heading in the opposite direction. What the hell had happened? Well, there must have been a holdup with the charter flight, and it had never taken off. But in that case, why had Laura not telephoned him at the hotel? And what were those damned sisters doing? Had she run into them at the airport? Was it a coincidence? And why did she look so anxious? He could think of no explanation. 
Perhaps the flight had been canceled. Laura, of course, would go straight to the hotel, expecting to find him there, intending, doubtless, to drive with him, after all, to Milan and take the train the following night. Oh, what a blasted mix-up. Well, the only thing to do was to telephone the hotel immediately when his ferry reached the Piazzale Roma and tell her to wait. He would return and fetch her. And as for the damned interfering sisters, oh, they could get stuffed. The usual stampede ensued when the ferry arrived at the landing stage. He had to find a porter to collect his baggage and then wait while he discovered a telephone. The fiddling with change, the hunt for the number, oh, delayed him still more. He succeeded at last in getting through, and luckily the reception clerk he knew was still at the desk. Look, uh, there's been some frightful muddle, he began, and explained how Laura was even now on her way back to the hotel. He had seen her with two friends on one of the ferry services. Would the reception clerk explain and tell her to wait? He would be back by the next available service to collect her. In any event, detain her, he said. I'll be as quick as I can. The reception clerk understood perfectly, and John rang off. Oh, thank heaven. Laura hadn't turned up before he had put through his call, or they would have told her he was on his way to Milan. The porter was still waiting with the baggage, and it seemed, well, simplest to to walk with him to the garage, hand everything over to the chap in charge of the office there, and ask him to keep it for an hour, when he would be returning with his wife to pick up the car. And then he went back to the landing station to await the next ferry whew, to Venice. The minutes dragged, and he kept wondering all the time what had gone wrong at the airport, and why in heaven's name Hadn't Laura telephoned? Ugh, no use conjecturing. She would tell him the whole story at the hotel. One thing was certain. He would not allow Laura and himself to be saddled with the sisters and become involved with their affairs. He could imagine Laura saying that they also had missed a flight and could they have a lift to Milan? Ugh. Finally, the ferry chugged alongside the landing stage and he stepped aboard. What an anticlimax, thrashing back past the familiar sights to which he had bidden a nostalgic farewell such a short while ago. He didn't even look about him this time. He was so intent on reaching his destination. In San Marco, oh, there were more people than ever. The afternoon crowds walking shoulder to shoulder, every one of them, on pleasure bent. He came to the hotel and pushed his way through the swing door, expecting to see Laura and possibly the sisters waiting in the lounge to the left of the entrance. She was not there. He went to the desk. The reception clerk he had spoken to on the telephone was standing there talking to the manager. Has my wife arrived? John asked. Oh, no, sir, not yet. What an extraordinary thing. Are you sure? Oh, absolutely certain, sir. I have been here ever since you telephoned me at a quarter to two. I have not left the desk. Well, I just don't understand it. She was on one of those vaporettos, 
passing by the Academia. She would have landed at San Marco about five minutes later and, and income right here. The clerk seemed nonplussed. I don't know what to say. The Signora was with her friends, did you say? Well, yeah, well, they're acquaintances. Two ladies we met at Torcello yesterday. I was astonished to see her with them on the Vaporetto. And of course, I assumed that the flight had been canceled and she had somehow met up with them at the airport and decided to return here with them to catch me before I left. Oh, hell, what was Laura doing? It was after three, a matter of moments from San Marco landing stage to the hotel. Well, perhaps the Signora went with her friends to their hotel instead. Do you know where they are staying? No, said John. I haven't the slightest idea. What's more, I don't even know the names of those two ladies. They were sisters, twins, in fact. Looked exactly alike. But anyway, why go to their hotel and not here? The door swung open, but it wasn't Laura. Two people staying in the hotel. The manager broke into the conversation. Well, I tell you what I will do, he said. I will telephone the airport and check about the flight. Then at least we'll get somewhere, he smiled apologetically. It was not usual for arrangements to go wrong. Yes, you do that, said John. We may as well know what happened there. He lit a cigarette and began to pace up and down the entrance hall. What a bloody mix-up, and how unlike Laura who knew he'd be setting off for Milan directly after lunch. Indeed, for all she knew, he might have gone before. But surely in that case, she would have telephoned at once. On arrival at the airport, had the flight been canceled? The manager was telephoning. He had to be put through on some other line, and his Italian was too rapid for John to follow the conversation. Finally, he replaced the receiver. It is more mysterious than ever, sir, he said. The charter flight, it was not delayed. It took off on schedule with a full complement of passengers. As far as they could tell me, there was no hitch. The signora must have simply changed her mind. His smile was more apologetic than ever. Changed her mind, John repeated. But why on earth should she do that? Well, she was so anxious to be home tonight. The manager shrugged. You know how ladies can be, sir, he said. Your wife may have thought that after all she would prefer to take the train to Milan with you. I do assure you, though, that the charter party was most respectable and it was a caravel aircraft, perfectly safe. Oh, yeah, yeah, said John impatiently. I don't blame your arrangements in the slightest. I just can't understand what induced her to change her mind. Unless it was meeting with these two ladies, the manager was silent. He could not think of anything to say. The reception clerk was equally concerned. It is possible, he ventured, that you made a mistake and it was not the signora that you saw on the Vaporetto. Oh, no, replied John. It was my wife, I assure you. She was wearing her red coat. She was hatless just as she left here. I saw her as plainly as I can see you. I would swear to it in a court of law. It is unfortunate, said the manager, that we do not know the name of the two ladies or the hotel where they were staying. 
You say you met these ladies at Torcello yesterday? Yeah, but only briefly. They, they weren't staying there. I'm certain they weren't. We saw them at dinner in Venice later, as it happens. Oh, excuse me. Guests were arriving with luggage to check in. The clerk was obliged to attend to them. John turned in desperation to the manager. Do you think it would do any good telephoning the hotel in Torcello? In case the people there knew the name of the ladies or where they were staying in Venice. We can try, replied the manager. It is a small hope, but we can try. John resumed his anxious pacing, all the while watching the swing door, hoping, praying, that he would catch sight of the red coat and Laura would enter. Once again, there followed what seemed an interminable telephone conversation between the manager and someone at the hotel in Torcello. Tell them two sisters, said John, two elderly ladies dressed in gray, both exactly alike. One lady was blind, he added. The manager nodded. He was obviously giving a detailed description, yet when he hung up, he shook his head. The manager at Torcello says he remembers the two ladies well, he told John, but they were only there for lunch, and he never learnt their names. Well, uh, that's that. There's nothing to do but wait. John lit his third cigarette and went out on the terrace to resume his pacing there. He stared out across the canal, searching the heads of the people on passing steamers, motorboats, even drifting gondolas. The minutes ticked by on his watch, and there was no sign of Laura. A terrible foreboding nagged at him that somehow this was prearranged, that Laura had never intended to catch the aircraft, that last night in the restaurant she had made an assignation with the sisters. Oh, God, he thought. Oh, that's impossible. I'm becoming paranoid, yet why? Why? No more likely than the encounter at the airport was fortuitous, and some incredible reason, for some incredible reason, they had persuaded Laura not to board the aircraft maybe even prevented her from doing so, trotting out one of their psychic visions that the aircraft would crash, that she must return with them to Venice. And Laura, in her sensitive state, felt they must be right, swallowed it all without question. But granted all these possibilities, why had she not come to the hotel? What was she doing? Four o'clock. Half past four. The sun no longer dappling the water. He went back to the reception desk. I, I just can't hang around, he said. Even if she does turn up, we shall never make Milan this evening. I might see her walking with these ladies in the Piazza San Marco anywhere. If she arrives while I'm out, Will you explain? The clerk was full of concern. Oh, indeed, yes. 
he said. It is very worrying for you, sir. Would it perhaps be more prudent if we booked you in here tonight? John gestured helplessly. Perhaps, yes. I don't, I don't know. Maybe. He went out of the swing door and began to walk towards the Piazza San Marco. He looked into every shop up and down the colonnades, crossed the piazza a dozen times, threaded his way between the tables in front of Florian's, in front of Quadri's, knowing that Laura's red coat and the distinctive appearance of the twin sisters could easily be spotted, even amongst this milling crowd, but there was no sign of them. He joined the crowd of shoppers in the Mezzeria, shoulder to shoulder with idlers, thrusters, window gazers, knowing instinctively that it was useless. They wouldn't be here. Why should Laura have deliberately missed her flight to return to Venice for such a purpose? And even if she had done so for some reason beyond his imagining, she would surely have come first to the hotel to find him. The only thing left to him was to try to track down the sisters. Their hotel. It could be anywhere amongst the hundreds of hotels and pensions scattered through Venice, or even across the other side at the Zatare, or further again on the Gideca. These last possibilities seemed remote. More likely they were staying in a small hotel or pension somewhere near San Zaccaria, handy to the restaurant where they had dined last night. The blind one would surely not go far afield in the evening. He had been a fool not to have thought of this before, and he turned back and walked quickly away from the brightly lighted shopping district toward the narrower, more cramped quarter where they had dined last evening. He found the restaurant without difficulty, but they were not yet open for dinner, and the waiter preparing tables was not the one who had served them. John asked to see the padron, and the waiter disappeared to the back regions, returning after a moment or two with the somewhat disheveled-looking proprietor in shirt sleeves caught in a slack moment, not in full tenue. I had dinner here last night. John explained. There were two ladies sitting at that table there in the corner. He pointed to it. Oh, you wish to book that table for this evening? Asked the proprietor. No, said John. No, there were two ladies there last night, two sisters, uh, due sorelle, uh, twins, uh, gemelle. Oh, what was the right word for twins? Do you remember two ladies, sorelle, uh, vecchi? Ah, said the man. Si, si, signor. Uh, la povera signorina. He put his hands to his eyes to feign blindness. Yes, I remember. Do you know their names? Asked John. Do you know where they're staying? I am very anxious to trace them. The proprietor spread out his hands in a gesture of regret. I am very sorry, signor. I do not know the names of the signori. They have been here once, twice, perhaps, for dinner. They do not say where they were staying. Perhaps, perhaps if you come again tonight, they might be here. Would you like to book a table? 
He pointed around, suggesting a whole choice of tables that might appeal to a prospective diner, but John shook his head. Oh, thank you. No, um, I, I may be dining elsewhere. I am sorry to have troubled you. If the signorine should come, he paused. Uh, uh, possibly I may return later, he added. I'm not sure. The proprietor bowed and walked with him to the entrance. In Venice, the whole world meets, he said, smiling. It is possible the signor will find his friends tonight. Arrivederci, signore. Friends? John walked out into the street. More likely, kidnappers. Anxiety had turned to fear, to panic. Something had gone terribly wrong. Those women had got hold of Laura, played upon her suggestibility, induced her to go with them, either to their hotel or elsewhere. Should he find the consulate? Oh, where was it? What would he say when he got there? He began walking without purpose, finding himself as they had done the night before, in streets he did not know. And suddenly he came upon a tall building with the word Questura above it. Oh, this is it, he thought. Well, I don't care. Something has happened. I'm going inside. There were a number of police in uniform coming and going. The place, at any rate, was active, and addressing himself to one of them behind a glass partition, he asked if there was anyone who spoke English. The man pointed to a flight of stairs, and John went up, entering a door on the right where he saw that another couple were sitting, waiting, and with relief he recognized them as fellow countrymen. Tourists, obviously, a man and his wife, in some sort of predicament. Oh, come and sit down, said the man. We've waited half an hour, but they can't be much longer. What a country. They wouldn't leave us like this at home. John took the proffered cigarette and found a chair beside them. Oh, what's your trouble? He asked. My wife had her handbag pinched in one of those shops in the Merceria, said the man. She simply put it down one moment to look at something, and you'd hardly credit it. The next moment, it had gone. I say it was a sneak thief. She insists it was the girl behind the counter. Eh, who's to say? These eye ties are all alike. Anyway, I'm certain we shan't get it back. What have you lost? Um... Suitcase stolen, John lied rapidly. Had some important papers in it. How could he say he had lost his wife? He couldn't even begin. The man nodded in sympathy. As I said, these eye ties are all alike. Old Musso knew how to deal with them. Too many communists around these days. Now the trouble is, they're not going to bother with our troubles. <laughs> Not with this murderer at large. They're all out looking for him. Murderer? What murderer? Asked John.
don't forget to turn in and tune in for part three, the conclusion. Good night.